to get feedback. this and then I'll push it yeah. away. I'd like to thank everyone for coming. Um, every year since 1983, uh, the Mershon Center has given the Edgar S. Furness Book Award uh, each year to an author whose first book has made a exceptional contribution to the study of national and international security. And the award, as you can look at the back wall, has been given to a lot of very prominent people in the field, uh, John Mearsheimer and Barry Posen, Lars Eric Saderman, Steve Rosen, just to name a few. And I'm very happy today that this year we're going to award it to uh, Jacques E.C. Hymans, who's Assistant Professor of Government at Smith College. He's about to go and be an Abe Fellow in Japan, and when he comes home, he'll be a professor at the University of Southern California, so he's on his way to a new career. But uh, we're very proud that he launched some of that career as a postdoc here at Ohio State. And he wrote a, a terrific book. It's called The Psychology of Nuclear Proliferation, Identity, Emotion, and Foreign Policy that Cambridge University Press published, I believe, in 2006. And it has also won awards far uh, beyond Mershon. It was awarded uh, the Alex um, L. George Award by the International Society of Political Psychology last summer. And in this book, uh, Jock explores the question of why so few states have acquired nuclear weapons when actually so many are actually capable of doing it. And he finds the answer not in either the constraints on the supply side, per se, nor on the external uh, lack of uh, security interest in having them. In fact, he doesn't find the security argument really entirely compelling for their acquisition at all. Instead, he goes deep inside a variety of cases and looks to the role leaders are playing and particularly their conception of the national identity within their country. So without further ado, Jock, it's great to have you back. Congratulations. I need to give you a poster. Oh, here it is. This is the award uh, that will go on our wall, and we have a uh, Xerox copy. <laughs> we have a copy for Jock that he can take home in the suitcase. Jock, congratulations. Thank you. Thank you, Rick, and uh, thanks to uh, the Furnace Award Committee. It's, it's really a tremendous honor. I, I can't tell you uh, how uh, full of myself I am right now. Uh, and uh, thanks to all of you for coming to this talk. Um, the title of my talk is different from the title of the book. Uh, the title is Assessing Nuclear Intentions and Capacities, Applications to North Korea. Uh, my idea is that a rolling stone gathers no moss, and so uh, I will be talking about the uh, basic puzzle that I start with in the book, uh, but then I will uh, be looking at a case study in North Korea that I don't look at in the book. Uh, and then, having uh, looked at this uh, puzzle of nuclear intentions with respect to North Korea, I'll then uh, present some of the work that I have been doing uh, since the book came out, 
which is going back actually to the supply side of the nuclear equation and trying to understand that issue uh, once again with respect to North Korea. So I hope that uh, that uh, new work, uh, which is new and is a little bit rougher, uh, will uh, be appealing to you as well. The basic starting point for any analysis of nuclear proliferation should be to recognize that proliferation has historically been very rare. Uh, today, there are only eight states in the world with nuclear weapons. Uh, we can talk about the potential ninth state, North Korea, uh, throughout this talk, uh, but eight so far. And there are around 50 that are generally estimated to have the basic technical foundation to try to go nuclear if they so chose. Um, the top line here on this chart uh, represents the standard estimate of uh, raw technical potential to acquire nuclear weapons uh, within at least a limited number of years. Uh, and the middle line here, the pink line, uh, represents the actually a high-end estimate of the number of states that had nuclear weapons programs over the years. Um, and as you can see, starting around 1960, there is a really substantial gap that emerges between the number of states that are capable of going nuclear and the number of states that are actually trying to do so. So this leads to a first empirical puzzle, which is why haven't we seen more nuclear weapons programs? Uh, but even the pink line is relatively high compared to the actual number of nuclear weapons arsenals that did come into being. Uh, and that leads to a second puzzle, which is why haven't more nuclear weapons drives ended up actually creating nuclear weapons? So again, the first puzzle, the puzzle that I uh, tackled in the book, is the puzzle of nuclear intentions. My question is, why haven't more states sought to build the bomb? And my answer to this question in just one sentence uh, is that leaders actually typically hesitate to build the bomb unless they fall into this one category that I'll elaborate uh, in this talk, which is the category of oppositional nationalists. And the second puzzle is the puzzle of nuclear capacities. I ask, why haven't more nuclear weapons-seeking states actually gotten the bomb? And the answer to this question uh, in just one sentence is that states generally find building the bomb to be actually rather quite difficult uh, unless they are legal rational. And that's the new argument that I'm developing. So in this talk, I'll be fleshing out each of these points in turn and particularly thinking about uh, the case of North Korea. So first of all, to this first puzzle about nuclear intentions. The standard arguments over what might produce nuclear weapons intentions uh, can be understood perhaps a little e more easily than simply talking about abstractions if we talk about some of the hypotheses that have been issued uh, with respect to North Korea in particular. In 2005, uh, a very good book was published, I think, uh, by Victor Cha and David Kang entitled Nuclear North Korea, a debate on engagement strategies. And in this book, um, they take two sides. Uh, Cha takes the realist side of trying to understand 
uh, North Korean behavior, and Kang takes the uh, IR liberal side. And so their hypotheses about North Korea's nuclear intentions reflect that divide. Cha, the realist, argues that since around 1989, North Korea experiences a drastic uh, drop in its international security position with the uh, decline of its erstwhile ally, the Soviet Union, and with the transformation of China. And therefore, since around 89, uh, North Korea conceives of this need to get nuclear weapons in order to deter us and also in order to stay on the offense, which is, uh, according to Cha, uh, North Korea's preferred stance in the politics of the Korean Peninsula. Uh, meanwhile, Kang, uh, liberal argument, is that, again, right around 1989, North Korean economy goes into the dumpster, uh, and therefore it needs to get the bomb not only and not even primarily uh, in order to deter us, but also in order to uh, give itself a bargaining chip that paradoxically it'll be able to use to spark a new era of cooperation uh, between itself and the United States and, and the outside world more generally. Now, these hypotheses are, of course, tied to the specifics of the North Korean case, but if you look at other uh, debates surrounding other cases of proliferation or expected proliferation over the years, uh, you get similar types of realist and liberal hypotheses uh, on those cases as well. Now, again, uh, in terms of the debate on North Korean proliferation, I think that the epistemological move that Cha and Kang make here is a very good one, very important uh, to move beyond the analyses of Kim Jong-il's hairstyle and the attempt to understand uh, what he's going to do on the nuclear sphere on the basis of uh, whether it's kind of pointing upward or not. Um, the, but the two-sided realist versus liberal debate that Cha and Kang conduct uh, hardly exhausts the potential set of social science theories that we might uh, be able to use to understand the case of North Korea and indeed the case of uh, proliferation worldwide. And indeed, when you read the Cha and Kang debate, which is so clear about uh, the different uh, potential options for thinking through this issue, you actually start to realize how similar a lot of the basic assumptions that realists and liberals uh, make are when it comes to proliferation. Um, in particular, they both tend to assume that nuclear decisions can be understood by looking from the outside in. You study the external incentive structure that presents itself to states, and then as a result of your analysis of that external incentive structure, you predict that uh, a state is either has a, ha, is going to gain a lot from going nuclear or it won't gain a lot from going nuclear, and then you assume that that's the basis on which state leaders choose. Um, one problem here, though, is, and which really shows up very clearly when you read a debate between people from these different camps, is that they disagree over what is that objective external incentive structure. Uh, and because they disagree over the nature of that objective, so-called objective external incentive structure, that offers us the first clue that maybe uh, the impact of the external uh, world such as it is, uh, may be largely through the realm of perceptions. It may be 
uh, less the external reality as it is, but more the way in which uh, individuals interpret that external reality uh, that we need to understand in order to explain this issue of proliferation. Uh, and indeed, I argue in the book that, that the role of subjectivity in nuclear decision-making is particularly great because the decision to go nuclear is such a big decision. Uh, it's, it, to quote uh, Kenneth Shepsley uh, on big decisions, it's a bridge crossed and then burned. Uh, this type of uh, decision to go nuclear, and I should be clear about what I mean by a decision to go nuclear, uh, not just a decision to get a certain amount of nuclear technology uh, with in the back of your mind the notion that eventually you might be able to use that technology for a bomb, but actually deciding we need to have an operational nuclear deterrent, and so let's proceed with all uh, deliberate speed toward that end. That's what I mean when I talk about decisions to go nuclear. Uh, this decision really is a revolutionary act in international politics, a bridge crossed and then burned, if you will, with potentially massive consequences, not only for a state's uh, international security position, not only for a state's uh, diplomatic reputation, uh, but also for a state's economy, as Kang certainly is aware, uh, also for a state's domestic politics and institutions, which is a level that uh, IR scholars often ignore. And then, of course, the, the ethical dimension, too, is very important. And what those consequences are likely to be for the state is very difficult to judge in advance. People have all sorts of theories, but... Uh, it's it, when the leader actually sort of sits there in the quiet of his room and is, has to make this decision, it's difficult to avoid the conclusion that there are great, vast realms of uncertainty surrounding this decision. And making this decision even more difficult uh, is the fact that nuclear decisions are also typically lonely decisions. That is to say, due to the secretive and centralized nature of most domestic nuclear institutions, the responsibility for making this choice is typically very concentrated in the hands of just a few people or even in many cases in the hands of just one man or one woman, uh, the top leader of the state. And the broader analytical resources and information that the state might be able to provide to that leader to make a calculated choice actually are bypassed uh, because of the secretive and centralized nature of these institutions. So, in sum, this is a big, complex, and lonely decision. No wonder it's so rare. Now, I want you to realize what I've done here. I've just taken the proliferation puzzle as I presented it to you a few slides earlier, and I flipped it on its head. The original puzzle that I presented to you is, why haven't there been more states with nuclear weapons uh, or nuclear weapons programs? Uh, we all sort of assume, well, it's a big bomb, so they're all going to want it, and yet they don't all seem to want it. Well, actually, that's not so much of a puzzle. I think that I've offered you a number of reasons here to suggest that we shouldn't expect every Tom, Dick, and Harry to want nuclear weapons. Uh, the real puzzle is exactly the opposite question, actually. The real puzzle is, why does anyone decide to get nuclear weapons at all? That's what the book attempts to answer. I argue in my book that certain leaders have a psychological predisposition to decide for nuclear weapons. This predisposition stems, I argue, from a conception of the national identity that I term oppositional nationalist. 
What is oppositional nationalism? Well, we can break it down into its component parts. Uh, by oppositional, I mean the idea that what we naturally stand for and what they, the key comparison other in our view of the world, uh, naturally stand for, that we perceive us and them as polar opposites in terms of our basic interests and values. Us and them in a black-white dichotomy. And by nationalism, I mean the idea that we naturally deserve to stand tall in the world, and in particular that when we stand tall, uh, we should be able to look that key comparison other uh, straight in the eye. So if you put opposition and nationalism together, you get oppositional nationalism with its basic positioning of being against and above the other. The next step in the causal chain follows the lead of scholars of ethnic conflict like Roger Peterson and Donald Horowitz who have pointed to the tight relationship that exists between identity, group identity, and emotions. In particular, for oppositional nationalists, I argue that the oppositional component of that national identity conception links up to the emotion of fear, and the nationalist component links up to the emotion of pride. So oppositional nationalism produces this explosive psychological cocktail of fear mixed with pride. And then, having identified these emotional correlates of this basic national identity conception, uh, I then look into the literature to try to understand, well, what are the effects of uh, persistent fear and pride on decision-making? And what one finds in the literature uh, is that uh, fear and pride, of course, increase uh, perceptions of threat and capacity, respectively. Uh, but this is not just a story about perceptions. A fear and pride also impact the goals that people seek. For instance, if you're very prideful, then you're going to tend to have a very strong preference for acting autonomously, uh, even if acting cooperatively might give you more uh, utils in some sense. And then in terms of thought processes as well, fear and pride uh, alter the way that people think through decisions and come to uh, make choices. Uh, in particular, fear... Uh, produces a hasty, automatic sort of decision-making that largely uh, bypasses calculation. So via these three pathways of perceptions, goals, and thought processes, um, I argue that fear and pride uh, end up driving the leader to decide for the bomb. And I want to stress this point, that I'm trying to argue that you need oppositional nationalism not just opposition, not just nationalism, but that combined oppositional nationalism in order to get the fear and pride together uh, in order to uh, have that strong urge to go nuclear. Uh, but if you do have an oppositional nationalist leadership, I'm also arguing that uh, assuming that a relatively unrestrictive set of contextual conditions apply, uh, such as having a certain reasonable level of uh, nuclear technology uh, having a political structure where the top leader actually does have that authority to make the decision that I claim that uh, he typically does, and also having some type of at least mild international stimulus coming from the key comparison other that would raise uh, that relationship to the top of the political agenda. If, if these relatively unrestrictive uh, conditions apply, I argue that the, you're very likely to see a decision uh, by the top leader to go for nuclear weapons. And once that choice has been made for various psychological and bureaucratic reasons, it's very hard to turn back. 
Now, as I've stressed, not all state leaders are oppositional nationalist. Uh, in fact, uh, at least in my research, I found relatively few that were. Uh, some leaders turn out to be oppositional without that nationalism. Others turn out to be nationalist, but without an oppositional character to that nationalism. And then still others are neither one nor the other. So in my book, I try to operationalize these concepts uh, using insights uh, from a wide variety of literature, but uh, especially from social psychology. And from measurement, I use a mixed quantitative and qualitative content analysis approach. Now, in the book, I looked at a number of different uh, states, Argentina, Australia, France, and India, and dozens of leaders from uh, those states. And I found leaders uh, falling into all four of these categories. And perhaps even more importantly, I found that different leaders from the same country uh, could be placed into different of these categories. So this really reinforced my understanding that in order to get this question, you needed to drop down below the state level of analysis. Now, since the book came out, I've extended my analysis to the case of North Korea. So on North Korea, actually, the qualitative literature is so overwhelmingly, uh, you know, um, agreed that uh, Kim Il-sung and Kim Jong-il are and were oppositional nationalists that actually it's not, the coding issue here is really not that challenging. Um, there's just wide, wide agreement to uh, take a scholar sort of associated with the left, like Bruce Cummings. He wouldn't disagree with that characterization of the North Korean leadership. And certainly scholars more associated with the right, like KDO, wouldn't uh, disagree with that characterization. But even so, I thought I would do this quantitative content analysis uh, that I have done on my other cases, and, and I'll show you the results. Uh, these are... The, uh, uh, the, my codings from North Korean New Year's Day uh, statements, which are a kind of State of the Union address for the regime. Uh, and I looked at all of the statements from uh, 1975 until 2008. And here I've grouped the results of these codings in five-year intervals. And uh, we can talk about the specifics of coding uh, in Q&A if you're interested. But for now, I'll just give you the headline. Uh, you have the level of opposition along the x-axis. A zero is minimum. One is the maximum score you could get. Uh, level of nationalism on the y-axis, again, zero, minimum, one, maximum score. Uh, and as, and I've, then I've, turned, I've just grouped these in five-year intervals. And as you can see, uh, both Kim Il-sung and Kim Jong-il's scores uh, very much cluster in the top right-hand <coughs> quadrant, uh, which is the oppositional nationalist quadrant. There are a few uh, somewhat discordant notes here from Kim Jong-il at the end of his, uh, excuse me, from Kim Il-sung at the end of his life. Um, uh, and we can talk about why that might have been. I don't tend to give a lot of uh, stress on relatively minor uh, variations like that. Uh, and certainly if you look uh, across the other cases that I have investigated, uh, even Kim Il-sung's relatively moderate scores are pretty high uh, in comparative context. So, uh, but again, I don't want to dwell on this too much. The main point that I'm making here is that the North Korean leader, everybody agrees that the North Korean leadership is and has long been oppositional nationalist, and this is just one more way of saying that same thing. Now, 
I've argued that the leadership in Pyongyang, therefore, has this uh, long-standing national identity conception. I've also argued that oppositional nationalists want the bomb. So not surprisingly, my hypothesis is that they probably always wanted the bomb. Um, now, this goes along with Cha, the realist view, and Kang, the liberal view, for the post-1989 period. You will recall when I was mentioning uh, those hypotheses that they both agreed that starting around 1989, North Korea should have started to seek the bomb. So for the post-1989 period, really the observable implications of all of our perspectives are identical. But for the pre-1989 period, we differ. Uh, they would claim that something happened in the late 80s that suddenly causes the North Korean regime to launch itself on a nuclear weapons program. I would argue that you have pretty much stability in their national identity conception of oppositional nationalism going back as far as I, as, as I looked. And so I wouldn't expect that something in the late 1980s would some, some suddenly have happened in order to spark their desire for the bomb. Um, so which is it? Well, there's really important historical research being done right now by the Cold War International History Project. Uh, what they have done, because they're interested in this question of North Korean nuclear history, and what they have done is to, because you can't go to the archives in Pyongyang, they have gone to the archives of North Korea's former communist allies to try to understand what the North Koreans may have said to their friends behind closed doors over the years about uh, nuclear weapons. And what the Cold War International History Project has found is actually a steady stream of statements dating back all the way to 1962 uh, by the North Koreans, top-level North Koreans, uh, expressing their great fervent desire to acquire nuclear weapons uh, themselves. And my favorite of these uh, various historical finds by the Cold War International History Project is a 1976 Hungarian foreign ministry memorandum after a meeting with the North Koreans. The, the North Koreans actually told the Hungarians in 1976 that not only did they want the bomb, but they actually already had it. And just in order to make it very clear, they said, and we manufactured it by ourselves. Now, this, of course, was preposterous, and the Hungarians took it to be preposterous. But they did view this as a pretty clear indicator of intent. Uh, and the Soviets, the East Germans, uh, etc., came to the same conclusion it, right around the mid-1970s, certainly, if not before, that the North Koreans were after the bomb and they weren't going to let that happen. In sum, the archival record provides strong support for some hypothesis anyway that would suggest that the North Korean desire for the bomb is not a recent development, is not something that simply popped up because of their difficult security situation or their difficult economic situation of the recent past, but rather it's something that seems to be deeply ingrained in the way that they think about uh, themselves in the world. Now, I want to be clear. I'm not arguing that these trends since 1989 had nothing to do with their nuclear uh, program. Uh, it's, they certainly could have uh, increased their ardor for the bomb, but what I am arguing is that if you really boil it down uh, to what is lying at the root of their bomb drive, uh, it's not these international events. It's the basic self-perception uh, of North Korea in the world 
that can be characterized by this concept that I've developed of oppositional nationalism. Okay, so now we will shift to the second proliferation puzzle, which is the core of my research uh, since the book came out. Mr. Kim wants the bomb. Can he get it? Well, certainly the overwhelming majority of analysts have suggested that this is an open and shut case. Of course, he can get the bomb any day of the week. Indeed, the CIA apparently concluded already that North Korea had the bomb uh, in 1992. Well, why were they so sure of that? Well, the assumption that North Korea can build the bomb uh, is based on a few uh, pretty clear technical facts. Uh, for one thing, the science of nuclear weapons is old science, and we declassified almost all of it right after uh, Hiroshima, so there isn't really much of a mystery there. Uh, moreover, North Korea is a heavily industrialized state that has had a nuclear program now for over four decades and a pretty significant nuclear program for over two decades. Uh, and furthermore, there may be some components that the North Koreans would have trouble uh, building on their own, but we also know that there is a pretty lively black and gray market in nuclear technologies or nuclear-relevant technologies. And we also know that North Koreans were uh, quite in bed with A.Q. Khan, the Pakistani bomb merchant, already as early as the early 90s. Um, so, uh, and then finally, of course, in October 9th of 2006, the North Koreans conducted a nuclear test. So uh, after all of that, you might say, well, this is an open and shut case. The North Koreans have the bomb, don't they? Well, not so fast. Uh, first of all, it's important to recognize that there are a number of technical steps that still have to be done after a successful nuclear test before you can actually uh, legitimately claim to have an operational uh, nuclear weapon that you can aim, for instance. Uh, and secondly, uh, the, but and even more importantly, the test of October 2006, the technical people tell us, uh, was no great success. Uh, it was actually a fizzle uh, it yielded somewhere between, well, just to give you a sense of proportions, the Hiroshima bomb was 15 kilotons. There had never been a first nuclear test ever in history uh, that, was, that did not rise to multiple kilotons of yield. The North Korean test, apparently at the very highest end, was one kiloton, and it might have been as low as 0.2 kilotons. So, you know, kind of a big bomb, uh, but certainly not Hiroshima um, now, you might say, well, okay, they didn't really do all that well the first time. They might have had some trouble with the engineering, so they'll probably fix it and get it right the next time, right? Well, maybe, uh, but I want to take a step back here because people's confidence that North Korea has what it takes to go nuclear reflects the more general belief that it's easy to go nuclear in today's day and age. But where, in fact, is the hard evidence for that contention? Uh, this graph shows the estimated amount of time that states with dedicated nuclear programs, that is to say states that we know for pretty darn sure had a clear intent to take their programs all the way uh, to induction of nuclear arms or at least as far as a first nuclear test. The amount of time that such states took from the launching of their program until their first success uh, with success being defined, again, either as a successful nuclear test or, in a couple of these cases, simply directly inducting bombs into their arsenals without a test because they were so confident in uh, their engineering. The 16 states listed here are pretty much uh, the complete historical list of these major dedicated nuclear programs. There are a few others that one could add 
uh, that some people would add, some people wouldn't. There are others that just petered out after just a few years, and so they don't really give us a lot of empirical uh, explanatory traction. Uh, but so these 16 states pretty much represent the universe of cases. Now, if it were the case that uh, it's now easy to build the bomb, we probably wouldn't expect that the amount of time that it would take states to go from the beginning of their program to the successful realization of their hopes uh, would be lengthening over the years. Um, and yet that appears to be the trend. Uh, if you look back in the 1940s, uh, 19, early 50s, USSR, UK, France, these programs uh, went to that success of their project in six years. The U.S. did it in three. Those were the days when computers were housed in gymnasiums, right? Now we have that 25 billion times the power of those original computers or whatever at our disposal. And yet, uh, despite all this general technological advancement, uh, the amount of time that it has been taking states to get the bomb has not been going down. It's been going up. Uh, and many of the more recent programs have definitively failed. Why? Well, the international nonproliferation regime does present certain obstacles to the acquisition of important technologies, and this may well have some bite uh, on this question. But as I've already mentioned, there's this vibrant global black and gray market out there in the world, uh, and the current regime, many of the best observers of the current regime really consider the regime to be in crisis in terms of being able to prevent this spread of technology. So the biggest obstacle to getting the bomb today probably isn't access to hardware. And these states all definitely want the bomb. So why is it that a lot of them uh, had took so long to get it and, and many of them even failed outright? Well, my answer to this puzzle is to look at the political underpinnings of nuclear technical prowess. The crying need for such a study was recently emphasized by the Blue Ribbon WMD Commission of 2005. The commission offered this stern critique of the U.S. intelligence community's obsessive, and I mean obsessive, uh, focus on hardware. And I quote, Equation of procurement with capability is a fundamental analytical error. Simply because a state can buy the parts does not mean it can put them together and make them work. Now, at some level, of course, this is an obvious point, right? If I handed Bear the components for a nuclear bomb here, uh, he would be flummoxed. At least I hope so. Uh, but, uh, but, uh, but what the WMD Commission is pointing out is that this side of the nuclear capacity story, the soft side, if you will, of this story has often been ignored or discounted in our analyses. And sometimes we run into it, we can't ignore it, like in the case of Libya, which the WMD Commission calls the uh, class clown of the nuclear proliferators. Uh, but uh, when we do notice a case like that, we just throw it into our narratives of this or that case in an ad hoc fashion. What hasn't been done, but what we must do, is to build a systematic... Uh, theoretical account of why and how state bureaucratic quality, or if you will, infrastructural power, impacts nuclear capacity. So what impact should we expect different levels of state bureaucratic quality to have on the functioning of nuclear weapons programs? Well, to answer this question, I turn to the literature on uh, state-led industrial research and development. What from the uh, uh, political economy literature? And one point that this literature finds again and again is that there's a vast difference in the developmental capacity 
of legal rational states on the one hand uh, with their powerful professional and pragmatic bureaucracies and neo-patrimonial states on the other hand, uh, that is states characterized by big man rule and clientelism and which often have very big bureaucracies but the fact that they're big doesn't make them uh, very effective. Legal rational states can be expected to meet all of the main organizational challenges of motivation, coordination, and delegation, and therefore they reach their developmental goals more often than not. By contrast, neopatrimonial states uh, often fall short. Neopatrimonial leaders tend to use crude techniques of blackmail and graft to motivate their people. That often works in the short run and is catastrophic in the long run. They pursue strategies of duplication of effort and divide and rule instead of encouraging the necessary coordination between the various bureaucratic organisms under their control. And of course, by necessity, uh, but also often by nature, as Steve Rosen has pointed out, uh, uh, neopatrimonial leaders tend to be extreme micromanagers uh, for whom no question is too obscure or too technical. This is a recipe for disaster in high-tech industrial R&D. So to put a point on this, what I'm arguing in this latest research is that poor bureaucratic quality is likely to significantly hamper, slow down nuclear weapons drives, and that very poor state bureaucratic quality uh, may well lead to stymieing them altogether in their complete collapse. Now, certainly even in states that are generally speaking neopatrimonial, uh, there can be some islands of bureaucratic effectiveness, uh, right? Uh, we don't want to just write a state off just because in general it doesn't do very well in terms of economic development. So could, isn't it possible that the nuclear program might be an island of effectiveness in these states? Well, I think, of course, it is possible. Uh, the question then becomes, when is it most likely? And my argument is that it's probably most likely if the part of the state that is running the nuclear program is itself well run. And as Samuel Feiner has argued, in states that deviate strongly overall from the legal rational ideal type, typically what we find is that the one bureaucratic institution worth its salt in these states is the military. And so this leads to the hypothesis that if you aren't lucky enough to have a legal rational state, then military-run nuclear weapons drives are likely to do much better than civilian-run ones. Although even having said this, I hasten to add that many militaries are completely corrupt and ineffective and wouldn't be able to do this very well. Uh, but this simple model of nuclear weapons program quality actually turns out, and this is preliminary, uh, but it actually turns out to be relatively powerful uh, empirically. Um, this table contains that same list of dedicated nuclear programs that I had before, except I've taken out the two question marks of today, North Korea and Iran. So this is just 14 programs. Out of these 14 programs, uh, five failed, and they're marked in red, and nine succeeded, and they're marked in green. Now, as you can see, if you're a legal rational state, it would appear that you can go with civilians to run your nuclear program, and that can turn out all right. Or you can go with military to run your program, and that can turn out all right. But if you have an overall non-legal rational state, and you hand off your nuclear program to civilians, you're really courting disaster. Now, there's only one case in that uh, top right-hand box of success, and that's the Soviet Union. And we can talk about why that was a success. Uh, all the other civilian-run programs of non-legal rational states failed. To further show the value of my focus on the political underpinnings of nuclear technical success, I'm going to quickly run through a couple of the historical case studies that I've done on this. 
Uh, first of all, look at the case of Romania under Nicolae Ceausescu. Now, Ceausescu's Romania was certainly a flagrantly neo-patrimonial regime, or indeed an extreme form of a neo-patrimonial regime, what Juan Lintz and Huchang Chahabi term a sultanistic uh, regime. Uh, and uh, Ceausescu also made a clear decision to go for nuclear weapons Uh, It has been reported in 1976 and then handed off the program to civilians. So how did that work out for him? Well, the Romanians did actually succeed in separating a small amount of uh, very uh, weapons-grade plutonium. And they did so without getting caught by the international inspectors. They were under the Non-Proliferation Treaty, but uh, they weren't uh, caught by the inspectors who came around looking for any misdeeds. Uh, So they did have some minor success. But in order to generate enough plutonium uh, for a nuclear bomb program, uh, they needed to have a big nuclear reactor. Uh, So, of course, they went out looking for one. And, in fact, it was Canada that became uh, very excited with the prospect of a major export. And, therefore, uh, in the mid-1970s, not only provided uh, Romania with a nuclear reactor, provided them with a whole fleet of nuclear reactors and with a billion-dollar loan uh, to build them. This was the largest export loan in Canadian history. At the same time, Canada offered a very generous technology transfer arrangement uh, to the Romanians, essentially uh, giving them the keys to the cupboard, take whatever technology you want. There were a few technologies that that the Canadians were trying to hold back, but their security standards in the Canadian facilities to which the Romanians had been invited in order to learn the technology, their security standards were so low that the Romanians were able to steal whatever they weren't simply handed. So uh, the Romanians had all the financing and all the hardware that they possibly could have wanted, and yet after 13 years of effort on this, uh, in 1989 when Ceausescu falls, uh, the nuclear reactor is far from complete, even the first one, let alone the five or the 15 that they initially intended to build. Why? Well, the problem was organizational. And uh, I can't go into all the details of this, but just to give you a sense of the horrendous mismanagement that was taking place in the Romanian program, uh, the head of the program was a woman uh, by the name of Elena Ceausescu, uh, who was the wife of Nikolai and who had a high school level education and wasn't probably the best choice to run a nuclear program. Um, We can go on on that, but basically the point is it's not money or access technology. It's not the international nonproliferation regime that held Romania back, and it wasn't some sort of reticence to get the bomb on its part. It was sheer internal bureaucratic dysfunction. Um, Now we can move to another case, China, which during the 1950s and 60s launched its uh, nuclear program. Now, during that same period, uh, China under Mao was not a picture of uh, bureaucratic uh, uh, whiz-bang economic development, right? Uh, They had a series of industrialization efforts that were catastrophic. Uh, But the nuclear program went quite well. Uh, The first Chinese test was held in 1964, which is only nine years after the beginning of that program, and that's really quite impressive considering the low economic and technology base that China was starting from. Uh, How could this be? Well, admittedly, the Chinese were devoting a very large portion of their overall defense budget to the nuclear program, and they got a lot of help early on from the Soviets, uh, including hardware, that was very important for their success. Uh, But in addition, and crucially, I would argue, the Chinese program was also beautifully run. 
Uh, to quote John Lewis and Shui Li Tai, who are really the experts, uh, historians on this question, uh, the Chinese program featured, and I quote, clear command channels, stability, limited reporting requirements, small high-quality staffs, communications with users, and systematic prototyping and testing. In other words, this was a very well-run program that even a developed country like France or the United States would have been proud to have called its own. So uh, why was it that China was able to have this unique program success in amidst all of the chaos of uh, economic development efforts there. And the short answer is because the nuclear program was under the thumb of the military. And in particular, it was under the thumb of the most professionalized elements of the Chinese military in the so-called red expert debate that they were having at that time in the PLA. It was the experts who got control of the nuclear program and had to hold on for dear life because Mao didn't like the fact that these guys uh, who weren't entirely beholden to him were, had the nuclear program in their grasp. So he kept on trying to grab it from them. And Marshal Nie Rongjen, who was the head of the National Defense Science and Technology Commission that was running the project, had to use all of his Guangxi ties with the other PLA marshals and with uh, Zhou Enlai in particular. They had all been instructors together in the Wampoa Military Academy in China in the 1920s, and that had created a very strong bond between them. He had to use all of those ties in order to keep Mao's grubby hands off that program, and that was absolutely crucial for the eventual success. So, back to North Korea. You may have forgotten already that North Korea was the subject of this talk. What does this general picture that I've been painting mean for our analysis of this North Korean case? Well, first, note that the North Korean regime is strongly uh, neo-patrimonial, indeed sultanistic in character. Uh, if you want to put a number on it, well, you can turn to the International Country Risk Guide, which gives North Korea a bureaucratic quality score of zero. Uh, which is uh, absolutely pathetic, uh, matched only by nine other countries at, in the entire world. Um, so we all, and we all know what this regime type has done for North Korean development in general. This is the famous satellite photo of the Korean peninsula at night. And what you see is all of the light in the south and then pitchy darkness in the north, except for one dot, which is Pyongyang. So uh, now Donald Rumsfeld loves this slide, and, and he uses it all the time, or at least when he was... Uh, giving press conferences uh, in order to make the point that, you know, this is a bad regime because they have all these basic economic needs and yet they're wasting their uh, resources on a nuclear program. And that, you know, is a fair point, I guess. But we can also view this as posing a question to Rumsfeld, which is, what are you so afraid of? I mean, if they can't get the lights on at night, you know, how likely is it that they're going to get the bomb? Now, so, so, uh, now, but of course, you know, okay, be a little bit more seriously, I, as I've stressed, just because North Korea in general uh, doesn't do very well with industrial research and development doesn't mean that the nuclear program necessarily has to be a basket case. So uh, how can we judge this? We have to look at the program itself. What has it done or hasn't it done? And the standard approach to measuring nuclear program performance is, of course, to look at nuclear outputs and hardware acquisition. And again, uh, I don't think that that's an unimportant thing to look at, we should look at it. As far as the outputs go, well, the October 2006, I've already mentioned, was the least auspicious first nuclear test in history. And, the, uh, and, and when it comes to hardware, international inspectors have told us that North Korea's main nuclear center at Yongbyon looks like, and I quote, a junkyard. 
But of course, looks can be deceiving. And so at this point, the typical proliferation analyst says, well, you know, we, it doesn't look on the surface that they're doing all that well, but uh, we can't take that for granted. And therefore, if we just consider the hardware that we think that they have, uh, then they make some sort of prediction about, you know, in two years, maybe they can get a, a, a nuclear arsenal. Um, that's, that's a dangerous road to go down. My focus on bureaucracy provides us with a new set of indicators of the quality of the overall effort here. And I'm not going to go through all of these, but just focus on the last one here, which is the basic question that I've been stressing in this talk, which is who's the responsible agency here? Uh, as far as we know, the best information that we have, the nuclear program in North Korea is not being run by the military. It appears to be run uh, by civilians under the direct personal control of Kim Jong-il, and uh, that is good. <laughs> uh, we probably, uh, that's exactly who we want to be running this pro program. Uh, so, uh, although we can't be sure, uh, in general, I would prefer the Romanian analogy over the Chinese one. Um, so, in sum, my research provides a new theoretical approach to proliferation assessment at a time when the old models are clearly broken. I've made two main points uh, here today. The first on nuclear intentions. I've argued that nuclear intentions fundamentally stem from the national identity conception of the top leadership. That, and if you're oppositional nationalist, you're likely to go nuclear. If you're not, you aren't. Kim Jong-il and his father before him are and were uh, oppositional nationalists and therefore uh, they've wanted the bomb for a very long time. And my second uh, puzzle had to do with nuclear capacities. I've argued that if your state is not legal, rational, in particular the portion of the state that's running the nuclear program, if they're not legal, rational, then there's a limited ability to go nuclear. The, as far as we can tell, the North Korean program uh, is not being run very well, and that should give us some reason for hope that potentially uh, we can avoid the coming out of a full-fledged North Korean nuclear state. With that, I conclude. Thank you so much for your kind attention. Thanks for the award, and I will very much look forward to your questions and comments. John. Uh, would you talk about, have you looked into the Iraq situation before 91? Is it the same? And if so, how does that fit into your uh, category? Yeah, I have looked into that, um, and it's it's a great case for me. Um, I'm trying to find, I have some, yeah, um, so, so one, as, as many of you know, the key, uh, the, the most difficult technology, technological step along the way to the bomb is to acquire fissile material. There are other technological steps that are also difficult. People often forget these other steps. Uh, but the, the fissile material acquisition is really by far the hardest. Um, and Saddam Hussein um, was really after the bomb in those days. And... Um, after the Gulf War, uh, inspectors went in and tried to uh, understand uh, that program, and they were shocked to find that Saddam Hussein had been running not one effort to gain fissile material, uh, but, also, but actually six. He had been running an electromagnetic isotope separation effort, a gaseous diffusion enrichment effort, a gas centrifuge enrichment effort, a chemical enrichment effort, a laser enrichment effort, and he had the idea of plutonium production. So 
the standard way in which these inspectors and other analysts have gone when they see this is, oh my God, he really wanted the bomb, didn't he? But that's exactly, if we want non-proliferation, we should be happy that a state with very limited scientific and bureaucratic resources would then decide to split up those resources into six and then pit them all against each other in a kind of a life-or-death competition uh, to see who's going to get to the finish line first. This is exactly the type of attitude that uh, neo-patrimonial leaders tend to take when it comes to uh, nuclear programs because of this divide-and-rule idea that they have of controlling their bureaucrats. And as a result, uh, it ends up with uh, constant warfare between these different groups and they spend more time on that than they do actually in trying to uh, make their own project run forward. So by 1991, um, although there was a lot of scare, uh, scary you know, statements made at the time about, oh, he was just right around the corner from the bomb, the more level-headed, uh, longer-range view, if you read some work by Donnie Ryder, for instance, on this, would suggest that, in fact, Saddam Hussein was quite far away from the uh, enough fissile material to build the bomb uh, in 1991. Um, and this after 10 years of effort and a billion dollars spent. Yes, sir. That's right. They don't wake up one morning and say, my God, I want nuclear weapons today. They wake up every morning <laughs> and they say, I want nuclear weapons. Uh, uh, <laughs> this, is, this is really something, I mean, the bomb could be eventually replaced by something else even more spectacular and more horrible. And then leaders with this type of attitude would start to covet that. But as long as the bomb is the biggest bomb around, uh, that's the apple of their eye. And that's the one that they're going to want. And then they're going to be willing to walk over hot coals to get it. Ted? I think the USSR fits your case with an asterisk in the sense that it was given to the secret police and very random programs with almost the military. And more importantly, it was <coughs> fenced off in the neo patrimonial state in the sense that uh, uh, Stalin decided very early on that the defeat of the Kripal Broadway was not going to occur. Thanks. Yeah, I, I mean, that it may be it may be that uh, that the there as I mentioned that uh, the military doesn't have to be the only well-run bureaucracy in a state that's generally speaking poorly run. There may be other bureaucracies that are also well-run, and if those bureaucracies, such as the secret police, uh, were well run then and if and if they take care of this project, then I would expect the project to run pretty well as well however i mean just as a bit of a as a as a caveat to that um, if the first nuclear test of the Soviet Union in one thousand nine hundred and forty nine had failed, 
there was going to be hell to pay. And uh, uh, Beria, the secret police chief who was in charge of the program, apparently had a list of all of the uh, various orders of Stalin that the scientists were going to receive if they got the test right, and a list of all the punishments that they were going to receive if they didn't. And so if, and these, you know, there is a lot of very uh, chance involved here in any nuclear test, so if they had gotten that first test wrong, uh, it could have been that Stalin would have just gone in and blown away everybody who was actually capable of giving him the bomb and that we would have had a very different story. Yes, sir? Uh, there, are, uh, there are reports about recent efforts led by Hans Blick's uh, uh, global efforts to address the uh, proliferation and even addressing the states that even have these weapons. Could you speak uh, on that, see if there is any update on that? He tried to convince even those who haven't uh, to give it up. Good luck. <laughs> well, I, I mean, there, there are really very few cases of countries that uh, gave up nuclear weapons once they got them. Um, there's the case of South Africa. Of course, the South African regime is basically putting itself out of business at that point. So it's not, a, not one that one could typically hold up as a model uh, for other states that usually want to stay in power. Uh, and then the three post-Soviet cases, uh, but then they had inherited these bombs that they hadn't asked for. So, uh, again, it's really not uh, very much the same. The problem with these nuclear uh, weapons programs turning into nuclear bombs is that uh, there's an escalation of commitment, um, both psychological commitment to the bomb. Hugh Gusterson has a book about America and the bomb called People of the Bomb. You know, it's sort of ingrained in our psyche somehow now that we are the nuclear weapons power. Uh, but also just sort of standard bureaucratic uh, uh, momentum uh, that we certainly see here in our national labs and inside the uh, Pentagon. It's really difficult to try to turn that ship around. So I'm all in favor of trying to uh, promote nuclear disarmament, but I think we should be a little bit realistic about our prospects. Sir? Um, is it possible uh, for um, an op op oppositional nationalist uh, country to transition to a legal, rational country? And if so, um, at what point did uh, the Western powers of the US, UK, and France, and so on, where were they on this spectrum pre and post 1945? Thank you. Uh, yeah, I think I maybe need to clarify that a little bit better than I did. Uh, when I talk about oppositional nationalism, I'm talking about the top leader uh, or the top leadership cadre uh, at the widest. Um, there are different national identity conceptions uh, at work in states that different people hold, and it's very dependent, therefore, on who comes into power, what sort of national identity conception is going to be uh, uh, relied on to make this important decision. Uh, but when I talk about legal, rational, neo-patrimonial states, I'm really talking about the state structure as opposed to the mentality of the leadership. So you can have an oppositional nationalist atop a legal, rational state, and that's what I would argue was the case uh, in France in 1954-55 uh, when they made their key decision. Uh, and you can also have 
a non-oppositional nationalist atop a non-legal rational state and all those combinations. Um, so there's no contradiction uh, between the, the one that we obviously have to worry about is oppositional nationalists coming to power in legal rational states. And so if you're looking around <laughs> the world for states to worry about, you know, I would say pay less attention to Venezuela you know, pay more attention to the politics in Taiwan or the politics in South Korea, uh, where they can really implement a decision uh, to go nuclear much more effectively than the Venezuelans uh, would be able to. Sir? Oh, sorry, I'm brown shirt and then back. Yes, yes, sorry. Um, I I was wondering about your discussion you had show that the desire to have the bomb goes back to the early 60s, um, and it's arguably rooted in this oppositional nationalist ideology, but desires can be fantasies, and it seems to me that um, an, an actual an intention to build the bomb requires a commitment, a decision, in a sense, to, now we're going to invest the resources and do whatever it takes and so on, and you didn't present evidence that there was such a, a commitment back in the early 60s, so I'm wondering, when did the actual decision get made? And is that decision post-'89? And if it's post-'89, then are we really back to Chai? Right. Thank you. Um, uh, Obviously, again, we're running into this massive uh, wall there when it comes to interpreting uh, intentions of North Korean leadership. Um, And so uh, we have had a little insight into what they were saying behind the scenes by looking at these other uh, communist state archives. Uh, What we find in the archives of these other states is not only kind of uh, dinner party conversation about wanting the bomb. What we find is insistent and repeated demands by the North Koreans because they like to demand things even though they often are not in the position of demanding anything. But anyway, demands by the North Koreans for training on very specific uh, parts, uh, technologies and uh, areas of science whose most obvious application is to nuclear weapons. And in addition, we see demands for the technologies that go along with that expertise. So it's not just about uh, you know, after dinner uh, with a brandy in your hand, dreaming about nuclear weapons. They actually are demanding specific things that they feel that they would need in order to be able to push their nuclear weapons dreams forward. And uh, at first, they don't have a lot of success. And then in uh, the mid-1980s, actually, um, because of the competition between China and the Soviet Union for leadership um, in the communist world and specifically with respect to East Asia, the Soviet Union suddenly reverses its prior policy of not giving the North Koreans a darn thing because they had decided that the North Koreans wanted the bomb. And in the mid-1980s, the Soviets start reopening their labs to North Korean scientists. They start reopening the flow of nuclear equipment to uh, the country. And as a result of that flow, uh, in my view, the North Koreans are able to uh, really push this program much better uh, forward than they had in the past. So uh, 
this makes it a little bit more difficult to, as you're correct, it's a little bit more difficult to say, right, uh, that starting in the mid-1980s, when the program really starts to make progress, is that because they have more intent than before or not? Uh, But I would really point to the much greater capacity that they had been given at that time uh, that simply uh, allows them to fulfill the dreams that they had always been expressing. The gray sweater, sir. Yeah. Um, yeah. I was wondering about the role of your state structure argument um, relative to previous explanations, which root explanations for a state successfully getting involved in other states' willingness to give them the material. So that's to say, um, are the those what are those states who had your organization structure that you say is necessary to get the bomb? Wanted it was every morning, wanting it, and didn't get it. And why was that? Right, so uh, so a number of the states that failed, including Romania, got a lot of help from the outside world. Um, Libya, as I mentioned before, um, you know, they got the whole kit and caboodle from AQCon, and when the IAEA inspectors showed up in Libya in 2003, <coughs> was it 2003? Or t- uh, they found that uh, much of this equipment had not left its original packing crates. So, you know, it's not just the, the hardware. I, I certainly, there's, Matt Kronig is working on uh, supply side factors and certainly uh, if you can't build it but if someone's willing to sell it to you, you're that much farther ahead. But what I'm trying to argue is that that's not enough. You've got to have structures in place to be able to take that hardware and do something with it. Uh, and so I am adding a word of caution to those who would argue that simply because we have an international nuclear trade right now, therefore the world is going to go nuclear tomorrow. My first argument against that is that most states don't want the bomb. And my second argument is that even those that want them, a large proportion of them aren't able to even take the football that last 10 yards to the end zone. Um, I've been giving uh, talks like this for many years, and I have always ducked that question. <laughs> and many people in the past were very annoyed with me because they said, well, it's obvious that Iran is trying to get nuclear weapons, and that's its own open and shut case. And since the late- latest national intelligence estimate, I think that my caution has been well rewarded, and I'm going to continue being cautious because just because we're saying something different now than we used to before doesn't mean that we're any more right now than we were when we were saying they were definitely going for it. So I think that Iran is a particularly hard case. I I, I had a choice. I wanted to be relevant, and so I sort of decided, is it North Korea or Iran? (laughs) And uh, and I'm very happy I went with North Korea because not only that Iran is, is, uh, there's so much uncertainty about their technical accomplishments to date or their ultimate intentions because that also there's a bit of uncertainty with that with respect to North Korea as well. But also because Iran is such a complicated regime structure. Uh, Huchang Chahabi, who I, I mentioned before, um, you know, has uh, one of the really world experts on trying to categorize regimes. And he writes an article on the Iranian regime and says, well, this one, 
there's nothing like it. <laughs> this, this, is an, this is just a, a category of one in this regime type. It's very difficult to understand how decisions get made. Ahmadinejad is out there talking all the time, but is he really the one who's making decisions? Or who makes, does, do, do decisions sort of waft around in terms of the real key uh, uh, leaders? So I think Iran, I, I give all respect to those who wish to take on that difficult case. <laughs> in, the, in the back? Yeah, uh, other question in your way to deal with uh, military, uh, military influence country as, as an independent factor. As I know, uh, unlike other democratic countries, uh, communist military uh, got the control, has been in uh, under the control of uh, communist party. Specifically in the case of North Korea, uh, the Labour Party uh, have, uh, has absolute control of the military. So I cannot, I think I cannot say that um, the military of North Korea has a, an in, uh, independent voice about uh, nuclear problem. So what do you think? Um. Well, the, the, the North Koreans have two major strategic weapons drives ongoing. Um, they have the nuclear drive, and then they have the missile drive. And the missiles appear to have done a little bit better, not great, but a little bit better than the nuclear uh, to date. Uh, and I find it interesting that, at least as far as the very sketchy information that we have, the military appears to have been much more directly involved in the uh, research and development of their missile systems uh, than it has been in research and development of their nuclear uh, energy facilities. Uh, and that kind of checks out for me that my, with my basic expectation that if you are going to hand off these very complicated uh, projects to some institution, uh, even if you're right that it might not be uh, you know, Sam Huntington's ideal of an independent, uh, well-run uh, military, still in North Korea, if you had to choose, probably the military would be the guys to give it to. Yeah, well, man, a lot of us are worried about our bureaucrats. <laughs> but, I mean, certainly the, I mean, it, 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 this is, a, again, maybe this is a little off topic, but, the, but the, the trends that one sees in terms of the bureaucratic capacity of the American state have been so negative over the last uh, 25 years. Uh, and when you read the literature on the state, you know, people like Meredith Wu Cummings and so forth, and when she describes the function, the dysfunctional state, uh, it is shocking how much of it rings true to an American. Yeah, sorry, in the red shirt. Yeah. Yeah, I'm thinking back to the slide that showed the uh, different durations of uh, yeah. nuclear weapons programs in various states. And I'm wondering, it's kind of an oddball question, but is there any evidence to suggest that? Of those weapons. I mean, that, it seems to me if we're, if we're switching from a security 
based explanation to an identity-based one, that simply the pursuit of those weapons could itself fulfill some function. Yeah, right. And and I so I tried to uh, deal with that by not giving you the entire list of all of the states that have had nuclear weapons programs. So that if you remember the first slide, I had that pink line, which represented all of the, the high-end estimate of the nuclear weapons programs historically. And that would that amounts to, say, 25. Okay, so there have been 25 states that at some point have been judged by at least one of the three scholars that did the large-end studies on this uh, as having had a nuclear weapons program. That's why I call it a high-end estimate because they, not everybody agreed about exactly what was their ultimate intention with this program. Um, the, uh, the, the, the later graph that I showed you are of those states that there's a general uh, consensus that, in fact, they did have that clear goal in their own minds of going for uh, a nuclear bomb. Now, we might be wrong about that. <laughs> you know, we might be wrong that Libya w wouldn't have been satisfied until it got all the way to the finish line, uh, but that's the kind of uh, state of the literature right now, and so I'm relying on the literature uh, to try to determine which states to look at because you're absolutely right that if in fact there are states that are happy to stay six months away from the bomb then that would muck up the conclusions that I was drawing but for instance you know some people say well you know Japan is right there at the border right but but that's where Japan wants to be is six months away. So it would be silly to put Japan up here and say, well, they're 45 years and they're still working on it. They're not working on it. They've worked on it. They've put it aside. And then at, when the right moment comes, if the right moment comes, they might take it up again. But and I should also mention that, right, that it's very important to distinguish between nuclear decisions to go nuclear the way I'm defining them and the, what we generally talk about in the, colloquially as a nuclear weapons program. You can make a decision to get a certain mileage toward the bomb without having made a decision that you actually want the bomb. And those decisions on nuclear hedging are actually relatively common and don't have to, we don't have to look very far afield from the typical security type explanations in order to explain them. But I think what we really care about is what states actually take this all the way. And that's where I think my argument can make a difference. the 
even though there are North Korean government, they probably don't have the capacity to feed their people. But they have uh, somehow very uh, efficient uh, the institutional organization to maintain their uh, uh, the, the, the bankrupt regime somehow. So shouldn't we have to uh, move away from that, just assuming those uh, some of like the psychological instability of those uh, leaders, particularly in North Korean cases? Uh, and, and instead of looking at the more like uh, their relationship with North, uh, the North Korea cases, the relationship with the, uh, China, because the China uh, uh, doesn't uh, uh, desire for the North Korea uh, to develop uh, nuclear weapons as much as the uh, United States does the South Korea development. Uh-huh. Right. Well, that's worked out great for the Chinese, hasn't it? But just a, just a very basic point that my argument is not that crazy people get the bomb. Okay? My argument is that the decision to go nuclear is a very specific kind of decision. It's a complex, big, and lonely decision. And because of that, even if you're the most you know, cool and calculating person in the world you're not able to figure out whether or not doing this is going to be in your best interest or not. And therefore, everybody, not just oppositional nationalists, but everybody, irrespective of their basic national identity conception, ends up turning inward on this question, looking deep inside themselves and asking themselves, you know, it, does nucle- do nuclear weapons become me? <laughs> is it me? And if, they, if their answer is yes then they're going to want it. And if their answer isn't, then they won't. And uh, we can get waylaid in a sense that I don't have any disagreement with you about the North Korean regime's uh, ability to uh, engage in these very difficult negotiations with a lot of tactical success. Uh, But those are much easier problems uh, than this great big question mark of whether or not going nuclear would be good for us. So when we move to that particular question, we need to step outside of the typical ways in which we analyze foreign policy, and we need to look for something a little bit different. Jack, I want to thank you. It's been uh, great to have you here several years ago. It's wonderful to have you back, and I want to congratulate you once again on the Furnace Awards, and I'd like everybody to really thank you and congratulate you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.